You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. And welcome to episode four, I think, already of Uta Be A Podcast. My name is Raj Baines. I'm your host. Should be used to that by now. Coming down the answer phone from Austria, Rory Benson. How are you, Rory? Yeah, very well, thanks, mate. Just uh, busy typing away and uh, I'm, uh, glad that the, the thunderstorms that we had yesterday are over now, so we've got a bit more sun. What was the game against Stuttgart like? Because I think a lot of people here got the chance to see it from HCTV. I think cheekily, there may have been one or two less than legitimate streams floating about as well that you could have watched the game on. Not that we condone or know anything about those, obviously. Um, what was it like in the flesh? Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was a strange game, really, because obviously it ended 3-3, 6 goals in it, but it was kind of a game which lacked a bit of quality. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a thriller really by any means apart from the, the dramatic comeback at, at the end in the last sort of ten minutes. Um, but those Stuttgart looked really really good right at the start. Um, they they looked like they had the beating of town. Town had a, a couple of chances, but you know that <coughs> Stuttgart went one 0 up and and they deserved that. They looked they looked strong. Um, obviously they get they go two 0 up uh, before half time and I think everyone was was kind of worried because that was Town's first choice 11. They, that was probably closer to what they'll start against Crystal Palace than it was um, than, than the second half team. Uh, but the second half team came on and, and absolutely played out of their skin. You know, they, all of them that played in the second half really put their names forward um, because they just looked like they'd been bedded into the system more. Obviously, that comes with training and a lot of Town's new signings played in the first half and maybe they're not quite up to speed with with Wagner's sort of uh, mentality and, uh, and his philosophy of football yet. But yeah. you know, the second half team looks, looks really, really strong. Who was it that, that came on in the second half? Was it more the sort of substitutes and things from last season compared to the newer signings in the first half? I can, I can read you a team out if you like. It was, it, it was very Go much... ahead, then, Rory. You read the team out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, the team was, I can find it. Don't offer to do me something and then not be able to do it. I'm going to do it, mate. Come on. Yeah, so uh, here's the, the town team from the second half of me when they played Stuttgart. Joel Coleman uh, in goal. Uh, Scott Malone, Dimitri Cavare. Zanka, Mark Hudson, Dean Whitehead, Phil Billing, Joe Lolly, Colin Kwana, Van Lepara, and Lauren de Potra. Um, and they just, all of them gelled really, really well. But, you know, there's, there's a few a few people in that second half team which I'd highlight, like Van Lepara and Lauren de Potra played well, Colin Kwana, uh, Phil Billing as well in centre of, uh, of midfield. So, no, it was, it was really good to see that maybe not the strongest team that Town could have put out looked very strong but then uh, on the other hand the first half team looked like they didn't really gel that well at the minute so you know I think we'll get a better better point of view on Friday hopefully when they've had a bit more time to sort of just be around each other and also train together so yeah I think Friday Friday will be a, a better indication of what's to come Am I right in thinking there was a bit of a mistake from Hef for one of the goals? Yeah he just I think it's one of those things that could happen to anyone. He, he just shanked a clearance and went straight to a man who, who picked out um, the Stuttgart striker for, for their second goal. So it was it was an error, but it's one of those things that you know you'd rather get those errors out of the way in pre-season than than have them against Crystal Palace on the opening day and lose one nil. So he's only just coming yeah. back, isn't he, as well? Because he's he's had his injury. Yeah, exactly. And you know it, it's going to take a bit of time to get up to match speed and. Like I said, 
it was a shanked clearance that could that could happen to anyone. So I wouldn't read too much into that one at the time being. Um, two of the other players that that town fans online I saw seem to have been impressed by that I don't think they were expected to was Colin Quanar and Van Lepara. I think you mentioned them just a second ago. Van Lepara was mm-hmm. central to the comeback, really, and Big Colin scored a goal um, as well. He played a fantastic through ball to Scanlon as well, I think. Um, were you impressed by those two as well in, in the flesh? Was there anything new or or sort of developed about their game compared to last season at all? I'd say Van Lepara was... was one probably the man of match for me on on the town side. Obviously, still got played very well as well. Um, but he just last season it, the criticism was that he doesn't have a final product. This you know obviously it's, I'm not going from one game here, but against Stuttgart, the, uh, the first goal came from him from the whip ball in, uh, and the second goal he had the shot which was saved by the keeper. That second goal as well was probably more impressive than the goal he actually scored because the ball took a pretty wicked deflection off the, the referee and he managed to bring it down, flick it over someone's head and get a very firm volley struck on target, which the keeper could only parry out to Colin Kwana. So he was really, really impressive. And, and if he can keep that going, then you know he, he will be pushing for a first-team spot next season. Obviously, he was first choice uh, last year in sort of the left-wing spot. But now with Tom Ince there, we're not too sure. Uh, Colin Kwana as well was excellent. He played out wide on the right. And as you said, the, the ball we played through for Sean Scannell's equaliser, not only the ball, but the sort of one-touch turn and then play through, it was someone tweeted after that, oh, it's like watching Messi. That was, that was genuinely <laughs> top-class stuff from Colin Kwana. And, uh, you know, if, if Neymar's going for 199, Colin Kwana can go for 200. Not you try to tell us that you're not on the Austria, Austrian bevs, uh, <laughs> but try to sell Quan for two hundred million flies in the face of that. Um, I think that's enough from Austria for now. Uh, we got a chat with Sam Tai from Bleacher Report, their lead writer, about last season's town, what he thinks about them, and and going forward into the Premier League, which you can listen to now. <laughs> Sam Tai of Bleacher Report, welcome to Utabia Podcast. Um, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Raj. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. If people think that we sound quite natural speaking to each other, if we let them behind the curtain, this isn't the first time you or I have appeared on a podcast together. We used to do this fairly regularly. Yeah, for all sorts of different mediums as well, for, for different companies and for, for different events and different things. So, uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Good to be back in the groove. Essentially, if me if you pay me or Santai enough money, we will appear on an audio f- <laughs> format for you, either together or alone. Um, today we're doing something we have never done on audio before, Sam. We're talking about Huddersfield Town. Um, we may have made fleeting references in the past, but now Town are a Premier League club. Um, it's probably you know time we give them some proper attention. Um, if you want to introduce first sort of what you do at Bleacher Report to sort of give your qualifications to be speaking on the, the subject? <laughs> well, I find it very difficult to pin down what, exactly what it is I, I do at Bleacher Report. I don't understand what my role is anymore. I do a bit of everything, really. But I'm nominally the lead writer, um, but end up finding myself on all sorts of Facebook Lives and video shoots, and I cover everything now. Like, been to Berlin to cover FIFA tournaments, been to the playoff final to watch Huddersfield promoted on penalties. So... Kind of everything in between, but all football. Uh, that's why I like it, to be fair. The one that freaks me out the most is when I go on Snapchat and your face appears in the Bleach Report feed. I, I do find that fairly disconcerting. I think everyone does. <laughs> um, town last season, then. You are an Aston Villa fan, not to out you at all. Um, but you obviously paid more attention last season to the Championship than I think you probably expected to, given where your club ended up. How was it seeing town from afar? Was it, you know, was it a bit strange to see your club deemed one of the biggest in England being outperformed by this little small town team? Well, look, I mean, as you kind of let on at the start, you and I have been on podcasts together. We've spoken together before. And I I happen to be aware of David Wagner and the, the Huddersfield surge because of you. So it was perhaps less surprising to me personally than a lot of other people 
mostly because of you, because you'd been yeah. bleating on about him the whole time. Um, <laughs> and there was even a point where I think um, when when Aston Villa sacked their manager at the start of the, or towards the start of the season, when they sacked Roberto Di Matteo, that obviously there was this David Wagner thing. That the storyline came out that he was he he might be targeted. Even before that, even you know the summer before, when before they'd even appointed Di Matteo, I'd written the piece on how Villa should maybe be taking a look at David Wagner, and Raj, you got very worried because um, you'd let on too much, and then I'd told everyone. <laughs> so, okay, not that much of a surprise. Um, I didn't want to be complicit in David Wagner being sort of poached by another team that was backfire on my part of yeah. saying too much. It would have been it would have been perfect though because it would have taught you a lesson. Um, but <laughs> it didn't happen, and so it didn't surprise me too much. And I mean, look at the start. It was start of the season. Obviously, it was it was a very strong start, and people just thought they'll they'll fall away. They'll fall away. Um, I think some people were looking at some slightly fortuitous moments as well, particularly from my perspective, like the game at Villa Park, which was very bizarre um, when Gallini tried to clear. Uh, a late uh, a ball towards him and it kind of bounced off someone and went in and the, you know, got the one-one draw. Backside, I believe, yeah, that, uh, that was that was equalized. that was insanity. Uh, and I think people saw those kind of moments because that that moment went across Twitter and across social media, and people just kind of put it all together and you know uninformed just kind of went ah just a bit of fortune it'll die off and the charge never died off. I mean, eighty-one points is a ridiculous tally, and I know that Huddersfield ended the season reasonably poorly, but that was because playoffs have been achieved and second was out of place so you start sort of planning for the playoffs and rotating and resting and trying to work out what to do but yeah. no I mean most people most people probably would have been very surprised by Huddersfield but because of you Raj I wasn't <laughs> it's not out of the question to suggest that Huddersfield were the only team to really push Brighton or Newcastle in the automatic promotion places and as you say, once that was mathematically no longer a possibility, perhaps they took their foot off the gas a little bit to to reserve some energy for the playoff running. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that didn't. Looking at that from from a neutral perspective, that didn't really concern me at all. I mean, three losses in the last four games of the of the championship season before the playoffs. People were looking at that and thinking you're tanking just before the playoffs. It's a nightmare. Um, am I correct in thinking that Danny Ward got sent off? Um, very he late, did in the last late. home game of the season, and he got sent off. I mean, that um, was the that was the only thing that was that that was anything that even slightly concerned me with regards to Huddersfield's playoff hope. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the lack of form towards the end of the season because it was pretty obvious what Wagner was doing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Having seen them them play against Villa, then what was it that immediately sort of struck out for you, rather than me? As, as you so kindly put it, bleating on about how well they, they were playing. What, what was it as a as a football team that impressed you most about how they set about last season in the championship? Um, it was probably, I mean, in direct contrast to Aston Villa under Steve Bruce, uh, the, it was the the dynamism and the the energy levels that impressed me the most. Um, it wasn't, I'd, from what I could see, it wasn't a hundred percent consistent across the season with a little dips here and there but Huddersfield at their best played the kind of football that everybody wants to watch and it's the kind of football that you hope or wish that your team would play um you went to the game later in the season didn't you uh at the John Smiths where Huddersfield beat Villa 1-0 and I think it would it was two it looked like two very different sides with two very different approaches and obviously Huddersfield approach is the one that you want your team to play football with so I'm excited to see that that come into the Premier League because any team that gives it a go, any team that is energetic and attacking and positive, moves well off the ball, is coordinated well, they, those teams are the ones that deserve to be to be in the survival argument all the way to the end. It's the teams that sit off and don't do much and defend that irritate me the most, obviously, as a, as a, as a lover of football. Um, so I'm excited to see whether or not David Wagner is willing to be as attacking in the Premier League, whether he wants to dial it back a bit. I hope he doesn't, because he obviously knows where his team's strengths lie um, and how the team adapts and how the team deal with that transition of quality of opponents. Because, I mean, yeah, how many how many Premier League quality sides are in the Championship last season? I mean, Newcastle, absolutely. You probably want to say Fulham towards the end looked like a pretty ominous outfit, and there's a reason yeah, why people were, think they they're going to go Yeah, they were head and shoulders the, the best team I saw last season and they were the only team, I would say, that looked to have been coached to the extent that Huddersfield were. 
Um, and that's not to do a disservice to Brighton or Newcastle, but the pair of them had benefited from higher spends and you know, slightly reactive tactics, in my opinion, at least. Um, but the way that Fulham and Huddersfield set about each other, and especially the way that Fulham matched up against Huddersfield directly, was really impressive to see. And that they'd be a team that you'd imagine would carry that form on into the next season coming up. Yeah, I mean the the three the three favourites or the odds on favourites we should say um, for for promotion this season are Middlesbrough, Aston Villa, and Fulham. Um, probably probably not a surprise. Um, with, I don't with think the... Aston Villa are going to get top six. Just to digress for a second between you and I, uh, I don't think uh, I think they'll they'll struggle this year. Define struggle because they got thirteenth last season. Is that struggling? Ooh. I think they'll they'll probably be top half of the table, but it wouldn't surprise me if they had a similar sort of year to what Fulham had and be sort of needing a few wins towards the last few games of the season to get in the top six. Because yeah. although the names are big and um, the <laughs> the manager is, is quite uh, well-versed in getting up and the chairman certainly isn't worried about speaking his, his voice, um, <laughs> I, they, there's just a an imbalance to the squad and a blandness to the way they set about that yeah, absolutely, doesn't really absolutely. impress me. None of the none of the Villa fans were very happy with how with how Bruce set the team out um basically from about February onward. None of the fans were happy about the fact that as soon as Mile Yedinak is injured, the team find it impossible to win. Um there's a lot to prove for Bruce. He's got a hell of a pedigree in terms of four promotions. He said he'd trade all of his promotions for one this season with Aston Villa. Um that's probably because he knows if he doesn't get promoted this season, he'll be fired. So yeah. that's, just, that's just kind of how football works. And um, yeah, we have digressed a little bit. So let's get back to Huddersfield. But Villa, there's a lot to prove there. Lots of names, not a lot of substance in, a ter- in, in terms of playing style, in terms of gelling, in terms of chemistry, in terms of ability to win games away from home, all of which you need to get promoted. A lot was made, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but a lot was made over how Huddersfield finished the season and the fact that they they ended the regular season in fifth with a minus two goal difference. And technically speaking, they didn't score any goals in the playoffs themselves in regular time. Um, they won two, two play, uh, penalty shootouts to get through, one against Sheffield Wednesday and one against Reading. Um, and that seems to have been one of the things that, has counted against them for some reason. In a lot of the the Premier League season previews I've read, they seem to have discounted the football that Huddersfield played for 90% of the season and seem to judge them on a handful of games towards the end of the year where we've already put them into context as to what was trying to be achieved, which wasn't actually winning, and going through the playoffs, which are, are such a, a tense and you know difficult time to... you know play football and impose yourself because there's so much pressure on those players knowing what's on stake and and knowing you know how many people are watching and just the difference in attention between the regular championship season and the playoffs is remarkable it's not too surprising that those were cagey matches yeah it looked awful to play in playoffs doesn't it i mean the plat playoff final which i was i was at sat there at my desk watching it was not the greatest game of football, as you would have heard from many other people, as you'll probably agree yourself. Although, yeah. if you've been able to detach yourself from the emotion of it, maybe not, I don't know. But the first 20 minutes were really good. Um, but I think Huddersfield kind of showed their hand a little bit early and the adjustment was made by Reading. To be fair, Reading are, are pretty well coached as well. Um, and they made There was they an easy a... Brown chance, wasn't there, in the opening yeah. few minutes at the far post where I'm still unaware as to how he didn't score. Yeah, absolutely. And it was the... It was the the runs, the movement from the number ten space, and the uh, and and then the movement on the and the runs down the right and the left. It was all very direct and positive and dynamic in those first twenty minutes. And Reading at su- at a certain point in the first half, midway through, got a handle on that, and it kind of squeezed the life out of the game a little bit. That is the game that everybody like. If you haven't watched Huddersfield this season, and many people will not have done so because a lot of Premier League fans don't watch Championship football, fair enough. But most people will watch the Championship playoff final because they want to know who's coming up and they want to see what's on offer, what they might see next season. I feel like the judgments on Huddersfield are incorrect because they're they're based on the fact that the statistics show that they didn't they didn't score a goal. Um, 
in, in regular time in the uh, in 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 the playoffs, and the fact that that game was very tense. Um, everybody was pretty frightened after a while, and it was quite drab. So that's probably where that's all come from. But I'm sure yeah. those people will be surprised uh, for with good reason once Huddersfield get going in the Premier League and they score a couple of goals, which I'm, sh- I'm sure they'll sure start fast because they got all the business done very early. It was described as a what a trolley dash, which was rubbish. Yeah, um, I took I th- particular yeah. umbrage with that, given yeah. the connotations of, of the phrase. Yeah, I mean, look, last like last season. So again, correct if I'm wrong here, because I, I believe this is what like David Wagner obviously took the group out uh, out of the country, had them doing sort of team bonding sessions, and really knitted yeah, they them went together to, as a group. Uh, they had a preseason camp in Sweden where they put all their phones away, no electricity, no running water. They essentially camped in the wild together for a few nights. Um, no training, no ball work, nothing. It was essentially team building to the maximum. They had to fish for their own food. They had to, you know, go hunting for um, animals, essentially, if they wanted to eat meat. Um, the wood had to be collected on its own. It was essentially a, a team bonding via Bear Grylls experiment that <laughs> David Wagner himself has attributed a lot of importance to in how well they started the season because... There was a sudden influx of, of players from outside the country. Huddersfield before hadn't had a, a non-British coach. David Wagner's the first foreign manager in the club's history. Um, and the amount of, of players he brought in from Germany and, and from outside of the championship was unlike most championship clubs. So the the bond that we saw and sort of the familiarity that that helped them off the bat from kick one in the championship was essentially, you know, put in place in pre-season already. Yeah, absolutely. So what what else is he supposed, is he supposed to do except try and replicate that this season? Because from what I can count, it's at least nine first-team signings. So, okay, yeah. not, all of them, not all of them are going to start on day one, but that is nine, at least nine new first-team players. They all need to be integrated. They all need to learn how to play under David Wagner, which is a very different way of playing to a lot of the other coaches, something they probably haven't been experienced with before. They need to learn each other's names. Um, they need to spend some time <laughs> together. So you've got to get it done early. And look, I presume I presume at this point that Wagner has identified nine players who fit his style of play, fit the mentality that he wants for the team. He got them done early so they could all spend some time together. And that generally means that if you've got that done early and you get that you get that cohesion and that bonding that's that's the key to a quick start and promoted teams need to get some points on the board early otherwise they start to worry and this is this is just this is just what Wagner's doing so De Poitre, Moy, Lossel, Ince, Palmer, Williams, Mounier, Malone, Jorgensen okay I know half the players but Wagner has earned my trust in that they will fit what he wants to do, they will do what he tells them to do, and that they will be a success. Exactly. I think the club were in almost exactly the same position last season, because if I'd given you the names Heffaly, Lowe, Schindler, and the rest of them, Stankovic, you wouldn't have known who they were either. Mm. Yeah, no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, but many of these players were very impressive. I was sat, sat in Wembley watching, uh, watching Lowe in particular for the first 20, 25 minutes or so before he got swiped down and injured and nearly went off he yeah. he he to me stands stood out as a very very good player because it was the first time I'd seen Huddersfield in the flesh he stood out to me as an excellent left back and that's a very hard player to find given that you know 10% of players are left footed and most of them want to play up front <laughs> that, that's true um, with the, the players that have come in there are obviously some more high profile than others the highest profile arguably Aaron Moy, uh, given the Australian media's attention on him and the fact that he's come from Manchester City. Uh, he was on, obviously a team of the year last year. He was, in my opinion, the best player in the championship last season. Um, and I don't think there's many people who can challenge him for that title. How important do you find him? Because he's a, a player I know that, he, that you like the look of as well. Yeah, I mean, I would give this, like, I've got a transfers spreadsheet thingy that I keep track of things on and um, I give it a little rating uh, it's got a 10 out of 10 for me because it's what is it about 8 million rising to 10 or whatever it is and 
Yeah. Um, that is, I mean, forget, forget the fact that he's an excellent footballer. Forget the fact that it's a pretty reasonable price. He was the heartbeat of Huddersfield last season. And I was worried that had should they fail to acquire Aaron Moy for a second season, be it on loan again or permanently, Huddersfield might run the risk of looking a little bit lost in terms of what they wanted to do in the Premier League or at least start much more slowly. But when you've got that heartbeat back for the second season and he can just allow everybody else around, he, he can set the tone. He can say, like, look, I've been doing this for 12 months. I know exactly what's happening. This is what we're going to do in the most critical position in the pitch in central midfield. That is a hell of a head start. So it's a brilliant signing. He's a very good player. And again, it's a sentiment I've repeated, I've said already on the, on this, and I'm sure I'll repeat it several times. I'm excited to see Aaron Moy take on the Premier League level and see how he stands up. The only opportunity he would have had last season to do that is when Town faced Man City in the Cup, but obviously they didn't give him permission to play against them, which is probably smart given how closely run they were in the first yes. leg. Maybe Moy would have been the, the tipping point that they just didn't need in, in that particular fixture. They obviously showed their class in the uh, in their home fixture, but they were, you know, it was as close to a first-choice Manchester City team against a completely changed Huddersfield Town team, and it was even, um, to say the least, in, in that mm. fixture. How do you think Wagner and his tactics translate to the Premier League? Because he's, he's obviously a very good coach he's obviously his tactical acumen uh, undoubted but the way in which he plays it was very new to the championship it's not a, it's not a tactic and not a way of expressing yourself that a lot of championship teams go for it it tends to be a bit of a more bog standard 352 or a 442 and hoping that individual talent and building a, a stronger squad than the rest of the league essentially is the way that gets you through. I don't even think a, a manager like Rafa Benitez, who's won the Champions League, was as tactically flexible and interesting as Wagner was in the Championship. Um, given that we've seen managers like Karanka and Eddie Howe, who've been given similar levels uh, and labels, sorry, um, go into the Premier League and, and have different fortunes, how do you see his way of playing translating to the Premier League? Yeah, I like how like how and Karanka obviously, I guess given the same label of that kind of like young young manager potential. One's a protege of Mourinho. One's seen as a future Arsenal England coach, which I'm not sure about. Um, but obviously their styles of play were extremely different. Um, it seems to be that over the last couple of years, um, and I include Aston Villa in this as well, is that, and Sunderland, is that there's been a lot of tired old teams that have just been hanging on, um, and anything that comes up and shows a bit of attacking fervor, a bit of pizzazz and some enthusiasm tends to do fine. And so you look at Bournemouth in that respect, and that's a prime example of one of them. Um, you look at Swansea when they first came up and that's a prime example. And the fact that they've declined of late in the last couple of years is, is because they have actually lost that kind of exciting tinge to what they do. And the tired old teams are going down. You look at Hull, Middlesbrough and Sunderland. Tired old teams. Their approach is nothing like Huddersfield's. Now, Hull obviously transformed a little bit under Marco Silva, um, but the damage was done. And I feel like Wagner's approach is perfect to take on the Premier League because it's fearless, it's positive, it'll shock a few people early on, and that gives you the ability to put enough points on the board early on so that even later on, if you are found out, which I don't think Wagner will because, as you say, one of the most flexible managers in the Championship last season one of the best man managers and with a serious tactic, tactical acumen, even if that collapse were to happen, you generally get enough points ahead of Christmas to be all right later on. And then you just take stock of it again. Yeah. Can you see the, the club essentially having a, a similar trajectory to the past season where they start really brightly, people suddenly have to reevaluate how they play against Huddersfield because they haven't given them the credit they deserve. They, more specifically, they haven't given David Wagner as a manager the credit he deserves. And they tend to not see teams that are more than the sum of their parts because a lot of the time, even the biggest clubs will will try and judge a match on paper. And you can't really judge attitudes, but they they seem to take wins for against certain teams for granted. Yeah, And then... 
as you know, it gets towards the business end of the season, especially with Huddersfield's last four fixtures, which I believe include uh, Chelsea, Manchester City, Man United and Everton off the top of my head. As long as they're fate sealed before those four matches take place, you'd imagine it's been a, a successful season. Yeah, there's a lot of ignorance in the Premier League, isn't there? Blissful ignorance and um, yes. a lot of um, a disrespect thrown around. And there's definitely a, a Premier League bubble. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I'm not gonna, I'm not about to suggest that Huddersfield can do what Leicester did. But the whole Leicester thing was just like, obviously they were very good. Obviously, we have to give them their credit. They had some excellent players, as we've seen. But the amount of ignorance that was shown to Leicester's rise in that first half of the season was absolutely ridiculous. And later on in the season, when Leicester slowed down a little bit because teams were, teams were respecting them, that's when we saw the results drop off a little bit. That's when we saw players become less effective. Yep, they won the league because they got it done. They were consistent enough. But all through the first half of the season... I think most of the big, most of the bigger teams, the, the traditional top six, just thought, yeah, they started well, but it's Leicester, isn't it? So we'll just play. They play four four two. What's the point? What's the point in even bothering to adapt or to to produce a plan? And then you know, three months later, you're like, okay, so turns out Jamie Vardy pretty good at finishing. Turns out Kante very good in midfield. Should we do something about that? It takes teams ages to figure this out or to show the correct amount of respect. And that's what Huddersfield have to prey on. They have to start well positively. They have to do exactly what they did last season. And they have to just play on that surprise card and just hope that teams do exactly what they did with Leicester. And do you remember even, look, go back to, what, 2008, when Hull started, like, ridiculously well pre-Christmas when they had Giovanni pinging in free kicks from <laughs> yeah. 30 yards? Like, again, another example of, for the first three months, people just go, well, it's Hull, isn't it? It doesn't really matter. And then after that, they go... Well, hang on, actually, they've got some dangerous players. Maybe we should do something about that. That's what Huddersfield have to prey on. It's always there. It has been for the last decade. It will be there next season. They can prey on that and they can get a good start. And that's their key to success. Yeah, I'd, I'd completely agree. I think um, I think that's what I've been saying to people, especially people who have you know publicly said that they'll go straight down. I've compared them uh, perhaps uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but there's truth there to Ian Holloway last season who, you know, said that Huddersfield would be candidates for relegation in the championship, completely opposite to, you know, what happened. I think David Wagner took great credit in uh, in reminding Ian Holloway of that as he was promoted at Wembley. That was that um, was which, yeah, that was brought up in the press conference that I was sat in after the game. Like that that came up a lot. Um and it came up at the very closing stage with the final curtain as well. People couldn't get enough of that. Although Ian Holloway's predictions are genuinely mostly terrible. So they do get brought up a lot. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, it's just one of those things where I think it, I think it fed into, as you say, this ignorance and this attitude where people, because there is such an establishment in football now because of what money represents. Um, I mean, we're talking on a day where there's a verge of a 199 million pound transfer, perhaps. Yeah. I think you could probably buy Huddersfield Town as a club four times over for that uh, <laughs> money. Um, maybe not Which- now they're a Premier League team. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, that makes Huddersfield the value of, uh, what, Carl Walker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh dear, is, oh know. dear. But, you know, this is the, the sport we're in now. Um, the fact that, that Huddersfield have these achievements in that context, they had the, the fourth lowest spend in the championship last year. Um, their budget was small. I think their turnover, uh, profit-wise, was something like £11 million, And that's immediately going to jump to a minimum of 170. And if they survive, it's going to probably double. This is one of those occasions where the money in football will completely change the course of a club, regardless of what division they're in. Because if even if the worst comes to worst, which neither of us think it will, and Huddersfield are relegated after a season, their prospects going forward aren't the same prospects as they used to be because they'll have that money, they'll have the parachute payments. Their team will, for the next, what, 10, 15 years at the very least, have a more solid basis and security financially than most teams will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not expecting to Huddersfield, Huddersfield to replicate this strategy, but you really need to look at a club like Burnley, who came up the first time, like three or four years ago, whatever it was, uh, well, that would be the second time, and pretty much just took the money and went back down. That was pretty much what they did. And then last season, obviously, they stayed up, but spent 
pretty, I didn't spend very much in the summer. Obviously, reloaded a little bit in January. And again, this summer, haven't done an awful lot with their money. They've got Jack Cork for $8 million. They've They've received $25 million from Michael Keane, and they haven't bought another centre-half, as far as I'm aware, at this point in time when we speak. Um, Burnley are a very good example of a club who appreciate that they might be slightly punching above their weight taking the money on offer and just developing everything around them because their training ground is under construction to make it better. The facilities are getting better. Burnley as a club are becoming more stable and more attractive just because they're using that money correctly. So, yeah, you're right. Even if Huddersfield were to go back down and even if they weren't to sit there and go, well, we'll just take the money and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll reform, it is transformative what has happened to Huddersfield and, and what they're on the cusp of regardless of what happens. Yeah, I mean, dealing with the club on, on a day-to-day basis... You can already see the changes that are taking place, even in sort of a, a minute level. The fact that staff are having to be brought in, you know, the media facilities are being improved, the infrastructure of the club, I think, is what we're touching on, is what is going to get a large portion of this money and is going to be improved. I mean, the the work that's going on at the John Smiths at the moment, they completely rebuilding the gantry because the one that was there previously could fit at most, I believe, 10 cameras and they need closer to 100, which yeah. kind of shows the change in attention that's happening at the, the club. The, the press facilities were enough for maybe... 10 or 15, I'm not sure, the the room that they were in. It was essentially a cupboard, no bigger than the room I'm currently recording this podcast in, if I'm being completely honest. And again, they'll need room for, you know, over 100 journalists, video journalists, radio staff, um, print media from everywhere. Mm. There's going to be interest. I mean, when you play clubs who have got players from certain other territories, you get the media from that country coming over. Yeah, you get plenty of that. I mean, Southampton have a uh, like a group of Japanese journalists that turn up to every single home game. Um, for Maya Yoshida. Specifically there for Maya Yoshida. I've actually seen, uh, not to shame them publicly, but I've actually seen them uh, sit down as a group in the press seats. And uh, when the third substitution was made and it was not Maya Yoshida, they left. And it was about 70, <laughs> minutes, about 70 minutes on the clock. There's still 20 minutes to go. Like The result was genuinely... Not important. Yeah. No, what? My Yoshida didn't get on. Don't worry about it. Not interested. Game didn't happen. So you get that side of it as well. It's not just the increased interest in, as you say, just not, not just the in, increased interest in the result, in the match, in the league, in what's happening. It's like, you know, if Huddersfield were to sign a player from Korea, you suddenly have another 10 people like very interested in what's going on for those reasons. Yeah. Um, if we just quickly touch on some of the signings, because I know, as you said, there aren't, many that you know of, but there are a few you have seen. You've seen a lot of Tom Ince through the years. Danny Williams is a player that I think you like. Uh, Steve Mooney as well is somebody that you've seen at Montpellier before now. And and Scott Malone is one that I think you said you weren't sure of. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that I've only I've only seen about half of these players play football. Um, I don't trust anybody that says like, oh yeah, I know all of them. They're all great. Um, there's a certain level of honesty that you need to that you need to provide in these sorts of situations. Um, Moy obviously is fantastic. We we spoke about him. Tom Ince, I've seen through the years possibly break uh, break onto the scene. Not really then tie it together, but then sort of flash brilliance every now and then and. He has the ability to turn a game on its head. So that is one that intrigues me. I think it is genuinely a transfer that goes either way because um, it's about seven, about seven million. So it's about the going, yeah. about, about going rate for a player, um, to be fair. Like, it's not a ridiculous amount of money, but it's not insignificant. Um, he, could be, he could be a game changer for you. He could win you nine points, which could be crucial. It may not happen either, so we'll see what happens. Um, excited to see Casey Palmer get a loan in the Premier League and excited to see... You know, obviously Izzy Brown at Brighton this time, but also him playing the Premier League, which is going to be great. Danny Williams is someone I think most people are going to either ignore or just presume is not that good. Um, presume he's not German either. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Like it's it's um he's he's good. Like I like I like Danny Williams. Um, I saw him. I've seen him at, well, a number of times for Reading, but then most specifically during the playoff run, I went to both. Reading Fulham games and the playoff final. So I saw him three times live in quick succession. And the energy and the physicality that he brings to midfield is very impressive. And I th- also think he's wrongly 
uh, wrongly pigeonholed as a defensive player sometimes when he clearly is not a defensive player. Um, he's very, very firm in the tackle. He's got a real physical edge to him. But give him the opportunity to start running forward and start start hitting that final third. He will not he will not dis- <laughs> um, sort of decline that invitation. He he really is an up and down guy, and I think it seems like to me that he's the perfect kind of guy for Wagner. Um, Steve Mounier scored quite quite a healthy tally of goals in a pretty bad Montpellier side last season, and the thing that again struck out for me was that whenever I saw him play. Um, he worked extremely hard. Um, he led from the front. He pressed. He harried. He linked play quite nicely. He's got a finish on him, but he worked very hard as well. And for me, again, it's about stylistically, are these players ticking the boxes for David Wagner? Are these players suiting the style that he wants to implement? For, me, for my money, it's a yes. And that's why I think they're good signings, even if I perhaps haven't seen 20 of their games or I'm not 100% familiar with him. I haven't seen him five times live. I think on paper it does fit, and that's all David Wagner can do. Um, Scott Malone is an interesting one. He never struck me as a brilliant player when I saw him for Fulham last season. Fulham aren't really that far away from where I live, and because of the football they were playing at the end of last season under Jukanovic, I happened to go to Craven Cottage quite a lot just because it was a genuine treat to watch them play. Um, uh, the two games that stick out, watch them beat Villa, um, and I watched the draw with Leeds, although that was an absolute siege on their box for 93 minutes, and then Tom Kearney put it in the top corner uh, right at the death, which was amazing. Malone seemed okay. Um, that's one I'm cautious of, and I'm interested to see how that works out, because for a while, Malone wasn't really even Fulham's best left-back, although from what I've read, it was only about £3 million anyway, so kind of risk-free in a way. Yeah, I mean, as you touched on with Christopher Lover, it's... Um... It's going to be competition for him because there wasn't any previously. It's going to be Malone's job to win that shirt from him. And it's not going to be an easy task, but it's it's going to be a, a competition for places that wasn't there previously. And I think if we touch on that trolley dash expression again for a, a quick session, um, that completely neglected to mention the fact that every purchase that Huddersfield have made is a remedy to a problem that was there in the squad before. Because last season, with one or two injuries, that first team became far weaker and far more brittle than it had been when at full strength. Whereas now, with the Premier League money, Wagner's been given the opportunity to give himself some more depth and a little bit more breathing space if somebody does cop a knock and the ability to to rotate in the manner he likes. So... With as far as Malone goes, you know they could have spent a lot more money on uh, a first choice left back, but I think it's out of respect to how good Lerber is that they've just given somebody the opportunity to test him rather than replace him. Yeah, I, I like I like I like what you say there. To be fair, like you just cannot call it a trolley dash if the players that you've brought in are remedies to positions that you need to fill, or at the very least on paper. Um, clear tactical fits for what the manager wants to do which yeah. to me from the players that I know from the from the players that I recognize from the shopping list and the only ones I literally know nothing about are uh, Zanka and Lossel and De Poitre. there's the only three that I know I know nothing the others yeah. I'm either familiar or I know them and they all strike me as smart signings from a tactical perspective from a stylistic fit and from a positional sense so I think it's madness to label it at all. I think it's just that's just that's just the ignorance filtering through again, though, isn't it? So that's yeah. what happens. I think it's worth bearing in mind as well that Huddersfield are essentially dealing with a standing start where the Premier League is concerned because they were a, a for a, for a Championship team, they were a weak Championship team as far as the squad is concerned. So compared to Brighton or Newcastle, they've got far more catching up to do to get up to Premier League speed. And the the numbers they've brought in and the prices they've paid is just acknowledgement of that. But yeah. not to, to labour the point too too much because I think people get the idea of where they, we're coming from <laughs> and I don't think we'll find many town fans that disagree with us. Um, the last thing I want to ask you is um, how exciting is this promotion and when was the last time you were this excited about a promoted team? Um, that's a good question. That um, I'd have to look through the tables very quickly while I talk. I think um, it is it is very exciting because 
Um, I mean, a point, a point that I kind of, I kind of touched on earlier. Um, I don't like tired old teams hanging on. Um, and I say that with the greatest respect to the team that I, I support, which is Villa. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's just like, it's, it gets boring. Like watching Sunderland hang on every year. It was, it, it was amazing to start with, with the great escapes, but then it just got a bit like, okay, when is it going to happen? Cause it's a case of when, not if, um, yeah. with, Villa, with Villa, it was the same thing when Norwich came up under Alex Neal and played nothing like they did in the championship the season before. They really they, they really threw the towel in on the attacking football side of things. I was happy for them to go. And again, not, not a vendetta against Norwich fans at all. It's just like, I don't, I like fresh faces. I like enthusiasm. I don't like the tired old teams. Again, another one, as I'm just flicking through, QPR, you know, they went, it was kind of inevitable. It, you know, give someone else a chance to give it a go because it, it does make the league better. Um, the answer to your question, having flicked through the tables, is probably Bournemouth because it was another very similar scenario in which a team that didn't really feel like a Premier League team has been promoted. It's a remarkable story. They've got a great, young, tactically astute coach. They've got a style of play that will bring the best from their players and will perhaps elevate players above their station in certain circumstances. And they are guaranteed to entertain you because they press and they pass and they play good football. So I think there's a quite a few parallels between Huddersfield and Bournemouth from the stature of the club through to the facilities, through to the style, through to the manager. And I hope that Huddersfield can do what Bournemouth have done, which is surprise a few and continue to go from strength to strength because teams that play the way they do, teams that do what Huddersfield and what Bournemouth have done deserve to do so. Excellent. Uh, that's everything, um, Sam. Sorry, I got your name wrong. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a question for you though okay are you concerned that you will no longer have the tallest floodlights in the league that you play in not cross my mind no give us no. a thought get back to me yeah I, I will I'll, I'll I'll flick through the floodlight blog that you clearly have and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and bring you some notes you'll have to come on later on in the season and we'll dedicate a good 10-15 minutes to floodlight chat yeah, cool. Good, good. I'll do the Excellent. research. Thanks very much for your time then, Sam. Um, no worries. We'll speak to you another time. Thanks again to, to Sam Ty. I hope everyone enjoyed that chat. Um, Sam's always good quality. We'll try and get him on later on in the year if possible. Maybe you can speak to him as well, Rory, given that you're uh, sort of secluded out there at the moment with only me to speak to. Um, first things first with the, the second half. Uh, Yadam's name again has reared its head. Uh, this rumour doesn't seem to be going away. It doesn't seem to be one of those transfer rumours that are without base either. So it's not as if we're being um, led by reports that are off the mark or anything. What's the, the noise like out there? Have you heard anything? Because from here, Barnsley apparently looking for a replacement already because he's pretty much made his mind up that he's going to town. Yeah, I think... What we've heard over here is that he's supposedly turned down a new deal at uh, at Barnsley. Um, he's a player that we know Town hold interest in. Um, the club and, and David Wagner weren't going to be drawn on on whether they'd made an offer or anything. We asked we asked David uh, both at the game and at the the training session the day before if he was someone that they put in a bid for. Uh, he said he didn't want to talk about individuals because if he if he gave us an answer on one, he would have to give an answer on every individual anyone had ever asked him about. So, but we we know from from our other sources at the club that he is one that town have been looking at. Obviously, Dimitri Cavare is on trial. If he ends up getting a deal, I doubt town will be will be bringing in two right backs. Um, but he's definitely one that I think would be in the frame. A two million pound deal which is being touted, I'd say, is probably a bit too much money for him. Uh, I think he's only got one year left on his on his deal at Barnsley. Um, and obviously, you can kind of, as a championship club, you can set your price to a, to a Premier League team because of the money being spent. But I still think Town and Dean Oyer will will be smart about it. Um, and I don't think they'll want to pay the £2 million up front like, like Barnsley want them to. Given the, the other prices that Town have played this summer... Um... Two million doesn't sound like a lot. Is there any reason as to why you think they're haggling over that price or trying to put in instalments or anything? Because, you know, if I was to play devil's advocate and, and think about this as a fan would, they'd go, 
you obviously need more depth in the right back position because Tommy Smith is mm-hmm. not yet fully fit. And if he is injured again, then we've got absolutely nobody there apart from Martin Craney, who isn't a natural right back. What's the point in haggling over two million when you've just spent eight million about four times and twelve million once? I think that you have to go back to what what Dean Hall was saying when when Town first got promoted. He said, you know, we know where we've come from, and we're going to give it a, a go. But you know, we're going to do it sensibly. Um, I think the temptation is obviously Steve Mooney came in for a, a record scene. They've broken their transfer record twice before that as well. And the temptation is to just go, oh, yeah, we're in the Premier League now, we'll splash the, splash the cash. But I think it's actually sensible from Dean Hoyle to, you know, he knows what players are worth. Obviously, Yadon's, what, 25, he's got, you know, a lot of years ahead of him. But he's also only got a year left on his contract. Uh, he's currently at a championship club in Barnsley. I think, to be honest, £2 million is a lot of money for Barnsley. Um and as I said before, championship clubs think they can set their price, and they can do with, with quite a lot of Premier League teams. But they can do with Premier League teams which are established in the division, or with Premier League teams which don't have the same owner as Dean Hoyle, who who realises where the, where the team has come from. You know, I think the, probably the closest team now to to Huddersfield in in the Premier League is, is Brighton because they've come from a similar sort of area. Obviously, they've had a few years more at the top of the Championship, but they've not been in the Premier League before and they've they've not had this vast influx of money. And I think from Brighton and Huddersfield's perspective, you know, you still have the mentality of a club that, you know, we could go down, we could only get one year of this and then three years of parachute payments and that, that could be us. So we still need to box smart despite having this influx of £200 million or however much it is now in the Premier League. Okay, I think that that sounds fair enough. The other side of that particular coin as well as somebody we've spoken a lot about is Dimitri Cavare. Um, He got 45 minutes after Tommy Smith had had his first game in a a long while since the playoff final against Stuttgart. How was he in that half? Because obviously that's the... That's the comeback half, as it were. It was the the team you pointed out was playing well. Was he a major part of that, or was he similar to how he played against um, Udinese? I think I think Udinese. He was he, he struggled. Um, obviously, he played very well against Barnsley. Um, this the Stuttgart match. He was kind of somewhere in between. He didn't have he didn't have too much to do. I think when when Colin Kwaner and, and Sean Scannell came on in in the second half. That helped him, especially with Sean Scannell ahead of him. I think they they gelled pretty well together. Um, but to be honest, he didn't he didn't have that much to do uh, at right back. I think Stuttgart didn't have much of the ball in the second half, and and when they did, it was kind of in the centre of midfield. It wasn't really getting pushed out wide on their left. Um, so yeah, I think and and when they when they did score the breakaway goal, he was sort of up the pitch helping out with the attack. So there's nothing he could have done, done about that. So. I don't know, it's a hard one to place because his, his performances have been sort of so, well, it's been hot, cold, and then sort of the last game's tepid. So Sounds like three bears, are we going to, should we start calling them Goldilocks? Yeah, yeah, well, Goldilocks, but the problem is we don't know which one he is. So like, <laughs> is he in the middle? Is he, is he really good and had a stinker? Or is he terrible and he's had a really good game? And they're like, sort of a power game. It's, it's a very strange one to call, but it's one that, you know, David Barger will see him in training. They'll know a lot more about him than we will. If we concentrate on outgoings after the obviously enthralling incoming chat, um, Joe Lolly and Harry Bunn have been linked with moves away, which I don't think is a is a shock to anyone, given how mm-hmm. strong Town are in that department now. Harry Bunn to Ipswich Town for a fee that was floated somewhere around six hundred thousand pounds. And Joe Lolly with more of a loan move, with the three clubs being mentioned as Sunderland, Barnsley, and Sheffield United. Um, is there anything, any credence to that that you've been made aware of by the club or anything? Again, the club have been very tight-lipped about uh, ingoings and outgoings this summer. Um, they are two players that we think probably will leave, uh, although we haven't had confirmation of that. Uh, we spoke to David Wagner again the other day about them, and he said that there's not really much he can say because they're out in Austria with the team. They're, they're training with town at the minute. If something happens in the future, you know, we'll, we'll be told by him. But at the minute, they're, they're town players. But for how much longer, 
we I think that that's they're two players who are very much not going to break through into the first team squad uh, into the first team sorry um, this year so I think it would probably be better for both of them to go out on loan or, or to another club 600000 for Harry Bunn seems like a, a fair price yeah I mean Harry Bunn you know, scored that goal against Man City uh, last year, which was a, a, a well a highlight before City then piled five against Town. So, <laughs> you know, six hundred thousand. I think if I was David Barclay, I'd say yeah, that's probably a fair price. Uh, it, it gives you an extra slot in your squad, and with bringing Tom Ince in, you know, Kachunga can play wide, and Twana can play wide, and uh, Van der Parra can play wide. I think they're okay in that position. Um, so. If, if Harry Dunlash, I think that would six hundred thousand would probably be a fair a fair price for him. Joe Lolly as well. He he started last season so well, and that injury against Villa sort of cut him out of the knees, and he never really recovered. So I, I quite like the sound of a loan rather than a sale, um, purely because he he could become a much better player because there are signs there that he he knows the game better than you know currently shows itself on the field than he has you know, the tools and the skills to be a better player. The clubs mentioned are interesting. Sunderland, I don't think, could give him enough playing time, um, although they are sort of streamlining their operation, so maybe he would. Sheffield United, again, seems like a good fit because they're, they'd be in a similar sort of position as to what Town were in last year, so you think he'd have a, a fairly prominent role there. But given how we've discussed about Yadam already... It wouldn't really shock me if he was to go to Barnsley as a make in that deal. Sort of town wave any loan fee that Barnsley would have to pay for him to sweeten essentially the the Yadam transfer. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that that could well happen. Um, I also think Sheffield United again would be a good fit, but I wouldn't write Sunderland off because obviously Sunderland are a club in, in disarray at the minute, especially with the. the Comments Darren Gibson made the other day, um, but they're you know they're they're going to be selling Sunderland. They they need to sort of clear out some of their squad. They need to bring other people in. As and a as a Newcastle fan, Rory, in. can you uh, can you take the joy out of your voice as you discuss Sunderland? <laughs> I am indifferent, mate. Indifferent to them. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think I think uh, you know they they need to clear out, and I think the players that they need to bring in are the players like Joe Lolly who maybe have something to prove but he just not something to prove but he has a terrier spirit from last year he has that he's going to work hard he's going to try and break into that team I think he's the kind of player they need they need desire in their squad uh, and I think Joe Lally would bring that for them yeah I'd, I'd agree with that I think um, both of those neither of them when I read them I thought were outlandish or you know, silly for any reason so if they were to go through I don't think either would be the end of the world I think they'd probably both be the smartest moves possible in that position. We've had a a, a question in, um, in the email actually, podcast.examiner.co.uk from Jack Kendall. Thank you, Jack, for sending this across. He wanted to know which wingers we thought would start against Palace, given how well Van La Parra played against Stuttgart. It sort of threw a spanner in the work, as, as most people, I think, assumed it would be Ince, Kachunga um, and Palmer that would start. Does this signal that maybe Palmer would find his way on the bench and Van Lepara might get that starting berth? It's, it's a very hard one to call. I think everyone before before the game against Stuttgart was thinking, you know, it would be it would be Palmer in some Kachunga, um, and I, I like having those three because they can, they as we said on a previous podcast, they can kind of switch positions and all of them can play in each other's position. Um, Van the Parra though is he, he had a stormer against Stuttgart. He looked really, really good, and he and it was that final product which made him look. It, it made him stand out because you know he's always had the talent. He's always been able to beat a man. It's just that final decision of whether he goes for the shot or the goal. He's just seemed to sort of beat a man, stop the man would get back, and then he beat him again. And it was kind of it was frustrating because you just wanted him to lash one into the corner or or put a cross into someone. Um, but yeah, against Stuttgart, he really sorted that out. So it's, it's a tough one to call. I think David Wagner, you know, he's obviously seen more of them in training. If Van der Parra is doing this on a regular basis, I wouldn't bet against him starting the first game. Um, personally, from what I've seen of all of them, I would go Kachunga in Farmer. 
Um, but yeah, I guess what we see against Torino, I imagine that Katrina Palmer and Ince will start. Will start, sorry. And uh, Van der Parra will probably come on. And if he can have the same impact that he did against Stuttgart, then you know he's really put the cat amongst the pigeons, and, and we could see him starting at Sellers Park uh, in nine days' time. I'd go along with that. I mean, he's Van der Parra is somebody that splits opinion. He's definitely a bit of a marmite player, but he's somebody that I have a lot of uh, a time for just because the confusion he creates amongst defences, whether or not on purpose, because um, sometimes I don't think he knows what he's going to do with the ball next, which um, doesn't help himself, but really does put a, the defence on the back foot. He can create a bit of havoc that is needed. Um, his pace is really good. Defensively as well, I think he's underrated. I think Wagner really appreciates how he's taken that on board. Um, so it, it it's an interesting one to see that you know how it goes forward. I don't think it's particularly the team that starts against Palace is going to be the final first team because the team that started the first game last season at home to Brentford wasn't the final first team. So mm-hmm. it will take a, a little while to sort of bed in and find out who's going to win jumpers and who's going to be first choice in what positions. And that'll likely take until around Christmas, you'd imagine, until we're all fairly certain of Who's higher in the pecking order? Well, I think I think last season what what stood out was that there wasn't a first team until sort of March time when when I think everyone was realising actually you know we we could do this we could get into the playoffs and we you know we could even get automatic promotion. So the the, the change around in the team before that was pretty much week to week. There was four or five changes. I think we can see. I think we'll be able to see that next season. And the one thing that maybe makes you think that. Van the Parra might start is that Crystal Palace are going to be one of those teams that are in and around town next year they're not not one of the best defences in the league not one of the worst either but I think town can definitely cause them problems and in terms of like you said someone who can who can who sort of confuses defenders and can be that sort of produce that moment of magic that is Rajiv Van the Parra that's what he's good for so maybe maybe it, it would be Van the Power and Imp starting and, and either Kachunga or Palmer dropping out. But again, if Kachunga or Palmer dropping out, you're kind of forgetting what they did for the team last season. So it's it's a hard one for David Wagner, but it's obviously a headache which every sort of head coach wants to have. Yeah, and as we said previously when we did the first podcast, the longer one about the players that we brought in, one of the main targets, I think, of these transfers is to increase the competition for places and, and make sure that nobody's comfortable and that everybody's kept mm-hmm. on their toes. And the fact that we're having to have conversations like this, the fact that clearly fans have, have picked up on it isn't a bad thing at all. It just means that, you know, if, if one week Van La Parra's shown in training or a substitute appearance that he deserves a start, maybe that's to kick up the backside that somebody else needs to, you know, up their game a little bit more and, and test for that jumper again. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's exactly what David Wagner wanted to do this season. Uh, last year, I don't think injuries helped, but there were, as from March onwards, there was a, there was a starting eleven. You you could kind of tell who were the strongest players in the squad. Most of them were the new signings, but this year, hopefully, with the the uh, nine additions, um, that that blurs the lines a little bit, and it is genuine competition. And hopefully, that just pushes the quality in every position in the squad upwards. Excellent. I'm not going to keep you for much longer. My last question is going to be about the Torino game. Um, You've said all along that this is the match that you expect Wagner to play closer to what his first 11 is going to be. Um, Is that what you you still expect? Are you still expecting sort of more of a full-strength team or are they going to stick to playing 45 minutes each and using it as more of a a fitness exercise? Because there's no no more proper friendlies after this match. No, it's, as I said, as I said before, I thought it was going to be the, the first team or somewhere somewhere close to that. I think the Stuttgart game kind of threw Spanner in the works a little bit because the first team, which we assume was the first team that started the first 45 minutes, just didn't really gel that well. Uh, we're not sure if that's a fitness thing or if that's just sort of a, a tactical thing, but I think that, that'll make David Wagner think, well, what do I do now? Do I do I play them again and then try and give them as many minutes on the pitch together to try and learn what everyone can do? Or 
you know, if that doesn't work again and they're 2 0 down at half time again, does he change it? Does he make 11 changes at, at half time? So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to call. We did ask him after the Stuttgart game and he said he wasn't sure himself. Um, I guess it'll depend on how training's gone today. Um, but I think because it is the last game before well, the last sort of friendly which will be open to the public before the, the Crystal Palace opening game of the Premier League season I think he has to really go with with the first team and then maybe if he wants to make a raft of substitutions maybe do it on the hour mark um, so yeah I, I do expect to be close to the first 11 starting uh, in the end back tomorrow Excellent, uh, are you back in the office on Monday? I am indeed, yeah so we'll we'll be able to do this this face to face on Monday, and you can tell us all about the Torino game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, uh, we can talk to that town win. Perfect. Um, that's everything for this week. Uh, thanks for for Ballinell again, Rory. Thanks again to Sam Ty for giving us his time. Uh, if you want to listen to old shows, they're on Audio Boom on iTunes. If you subscribe on iTunes, you won't ever miss a show. They'll beam directly to your whatever Apple device you choose to listen on. Um, they've actually, I noticed, Rory, we're on their new and noteworthy section on the the iTunes podcast homepage, which is a nice little bump up for us. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, really pleased that. But us and also Huddersfield Town are getting a bit of recognition. Yeah, I, I think that sort of given that nobody's really <laughs> given Town the, the coverage that they've deserved up until this point, hopefully this is contributing to that. Um Again, follow us on Twitter, o to be a pod, um, and send us any questions to the the email address as well, podcastexaminer.co.uk, and that's about everything. We'll we'll speak to you on Monday. Speak to you then, Rory. Yeah, speak to you then, mate. Nu de Samsung S9 Plus. Voor een genadeloos lage prijs, check tele2.nl voor de beste deal voor jou. Niet omdat het moet, maar omdat het kan.